Hello. Good morning. Um, two quick things before we start, the first of which is Doug Getch, um, who's one of our faculty members and a lovely poet, is going to be reading tonight at Prairie Lights at 7 o'clock. And the second thing is, is that Katie has handouts for this lecture um, that I just passed out, but if someone comes in late in the back, or if you didn't get one, um, you can just grab one on either side here. What am I? asks the poet Andre Breton. And he goes on to say, perhaps everything would amount to knowing whom I haunt. Addressing one of the more pressing questions of writing, the question of influence. What images, themes, ideas, forms, tones are we in awe of in our reading life and therefore in serious debt to as writers? Because in this way, we're all ghosts upon the text. Shadows breezing through the frightening forest of tiny dark marks, invisible, watchful, hovering eyes that glimmer upon a brilliant turn of verse. And with this haunting, this active attention to literary histories, traditions, structures, we learn in what ways we necessarily do and must shadow the language conjured before us. We learn to revel in thematic and formal constraints and appreciate the poets or forms to which we are eternally, irrevocably tethered. As the poet Devin Johnston writes in a poem titled, An Address to a Ghost, a cyclist is only such while seated on a bike, a sleeper while asleep, these forms only forms fulfilled as you are now, no more than this atone. And so, how to know what forms or phantom forms would best complement our own poems? And, what point does, and at what point does the frame illuminate? At today's Elevenses, Katie Ford will discuss how we can constructively alter these ancient models to fit our own work. Katie is the author of Deposition and the new chapbook, Storm. She holds master's degrees from both Harvard and the Writer's Workshop here. And she's been published widely in such journals as the American Poetry Review, Plowshares, and the Partisan Review. Katie is also the poetry editor of the New Orleans Review. So please join me in welcoming Katie Four. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Carol. Um, let me get myself settled. Okay. Uh, so the premise of what I want to talk about is a kind of uh, debate as to whether uh, a poet writes traditionally or uh, in a free verse uh, way. And this is a kind of question that comes before every poet. And I'd kind of like to suggest that this question is a bit too black and white to be very fruitful in any creative way. Uh, there are ways in which you can be influenced by our traditional forms. And by traditional form in poetry, I mean things like writing in the sonnet, or the villanelle, or the sestina, the pantoum, all of those forms that you've heard uh, uh, names for that have been carried down through the centuries. Uh, if a poet is writing in traditional form, what we mean is they are writing very strictly, in a sense, in those what are also called closed forms. So as a poet, 
is your only choice to either write the sonnet or to write in free verse. And what I'd like to talk about is the fact that there's another way, and a way that has been used uh, by very, very many poets, but at the same time, still it seems to be this debate goes on in a very kind of strict way. And I think the argument of that debate is not the most interesting question we can ask ourselves, uh, nor is it the most uh, enlivening for our poems. So instead of thinking about, for instance, the sonnet as something that uh, we either do or don't do, uh, what I want to do this morning is take you through the options that the sonnet brings alive for you as a poet so that you can steal from the sonnet uh, and borrow from what it does in your poems without feeling like uh, you're cheating, you either cheat or you obey, okay? Why kind of this strictness? There doesn't need to be uh, this kind of strictness. So, the, if you look at the front sheet, well, no, you have one sheet back and front. The front says ghost forms at the top. And in a sense, I got that title from a quote by the late poet uh, Theodore Retke, one of our great uh, modern poets, who said that behind every free verse poem, there is the ghost of a form. So behind every free verse poem, there is the ghost of a form. So what is it? that might be haunting a poem. What is there and not there at once? What can you not exactly see the whole body of, but you see a kind of uh, shadow or shade of in a sense? So I'm wondering uh, what we can bring into our poems that are shadows, not for the sake of them, not for the sake of, uh, oh, I've written a sonnet-like thing, but for the sake of how it can complexify our thinking, our music, and all of those things we strive for as poets, uh, like good arguments in our poems, uh, clear emotion, intricate thought, things like that. So I love that Retke quote, and I think that it's very helpful uh, in, in thinking about our poetry. And the other thing to keep in mind is that the term free verse is also a bit of a lie. So the, the free verse poem really is never fully free. So in the same way that traditional form, uh, in order to be musically interesting, usually breaks its form at some point. So that a Shakespeare sonnet, for instance, uh, you will never be able to trace it into perfect iams all the way through. So that it's not iambic pentameter in some absolute sense, but where Shakespeare will break the sound or where John Donne breaks the iambic or the pentameter a bit is actually where the poet is want, wanting you to look into the poem and say what is being meant here by breakage. So. Think in terms of the traditional forms as also wanting to break themselves a bit. And we can get rid of this strict sense and uh, dogma that sometimes <clears throat> we feel ourselves to be underneath. Uh, Retke would say that the ghost that's usually in free verse poems 
is at least blank verse, which is unrhymed iambic pentameter. So he would say, usually the ghost is blank verse, but I want to look today at how we can use other ghosts. Uh, and first I want to look at the sonnet. So if you look at the top here, what I've given you are uh, two uh, poems, two sonnets. One on the left is the English or Shakespearean sonnet, sonnet number three by Shakespeare. And on the right, the Italian uh, and also called the Petrarchan sonnet by John Donne, part of his holy sonnets, which are a series of sonnets uh, meditating on the divine. So, in the English and, and in the Italian tradition of the sonnet, we have very different ways of presenting arguments, in a sense. So, if you were to use a sonnet, automatically you get a kind of musical score that your uh, thinking and language can go into and can use and then can also break. Uh, but what you also get, and which isn't as talked about, I think, in the sonnet, is the fact that a sonnet is a very intricate way of thinking about something. And it's, I think, a very useful old form, traditional form, to borrow when we compose poems. Because it teaches us how, in a sense, to build an argument, and then uh, in some way to conclude and persuade. So if you look at the first, um, on the left, the Shakespearean model, one of the, the rules of the Shakespearean sonnet, or the English sonnet, is that in each quatrain, and in each group of four lines, the argument that is presented uh, must be argued differently in each quatrain. So that as you move along, Shakespeare will not allow himself, for instance, to repeat uh, a metaphor. So if he begins with one metaphor, he can't have that metaphor for the entire poem. Okay, so, uh, or he cannot, in a sense, use the same uh, rhetorical uh, devices like the question or uh, the exclamation, different things like this. You must switch with every quatrain how to develop your thinking for it to be technically a Shakespearean sonnet. So you could even look in Shakespeare's sonnets and say, well, I don't think this is Shakespearean because he, he repeats himself here in quatrain two. So a Shakespearean sonnet, you could actually decide this is not Shakespearean. You know. So let's, let me read this sonnet number three and I'll show you a bit here of what I mean. Now these are, in his sonnet sequence, he begins about the first maybe 15, 20 poems uh, are referred to as the procreative sonnets. They're, they're wanting to encourage us to procreate in, in kind of any way he can think of. One is going to be very literal, have children. The other will be write poems. Uh, and another one will be well, if you can't do any of that, I'll put you in my poem and you'll live forever. So Shakespeare kind of will pat himself on the back and say, well, here you are. I've made you live forever. So that you'll be all right. So here's Shakespeare's sonnet number three. Now listen for what the argument is, because a sonnet will always have an argument. If it doesn't have an argument, it's not a sonnet. 
So that if you just write something in 14 lines, you know, and iambic pentameter, if it doesn't have an argument, not a sonnet. Look in thy glass and tell the face thou viewest. Now is the time that face should form another, whose fresh repair, if now thou not renewest, thou dost beguile the world, unbless some mother. Now listen to him shift here. For where is she so fair whose uneared womb disdains the tillage of thy husbandry? Or who is he so fond will be the tomb of his self-love to stop posterity? Now he abandons the question, thou art thy mother's glass and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. So thou through windows of thine age shalt see, despite the wrinkles, despite of wrinkles, this thy golden time. But if thou live, remembered not to be, thy single and thy image dies with thee. Now one thing I really love about the sonnet is, and I like to steal this all the time, is to turn, to have a turn in a poem. And I have put in bold here where the poems turn. And this is uh, in the Shakespearean or English sonnet, it turns after three quatrains, it turns in the couplet. And what the turn does is it's not just shifting from the quatrain to the couplet, although formally it does that, which also changes the music a bit. Uh, but it also is looking at what it has said, and now in Shakespeare specifically, will give us some sort of two-line conclusion. Now this is very difficult because you have two lines and you have to uh, do, do the work of finishing the poem. And you have to reflect back on those quatrains, in a sense, and not simply be summary statement, okay? So if you were Shakespeare and in two lines had to say something that would conclude, what kind of statements do you think we use that are, that are short, conclusive ways of speaking? What do you think? You can't go on and on. You can't think through the thing for very long. Yes? Analogies. Okay, an analogy, a quick analogy. Yes, that's a good way. There are tonal ways as well. How, what does he sound like here? But if thou live, remembered not to be, die single, and thine image dies with thee. What kind of statement or speech act is that? Yeah. Okay, a comparative. So what is being compared? I'm sorry? Imperative. Oh yes, imperative. That's easier, yeah. So telling us something, you know, commanding us, um, threatening. There's a little threat here, isn't there? Shakespeare will kind of scare you in a sense. Uh, you know, so if you're not going to be remembered, if you die alone, that's it. Your image is gone. Uh, so this kind of a command will be quick. What else is quick? Yeah. Contrast where he's set up the question in three ways and then said, but. Yes, very good. So one of the things that uh, is so lovely in that turn and easy to do in your own poems is to shift uh, in that line with a word that actually turns thinking onto itself. So some words that will do this very quickly are but, but is probably the most obvious, 
um, and it will contrast against what you've just said. Yet, uh, then, although, so, uh, what are some others? Still, uh, there's all these ways that the mind can then just move against itself or conclude and say, so, what I have just said, you know, now what I tell you is this. And these words prepare the mind, in a sense, to position itself differently. And one thing I think happens to me sometimes in my writing, and I see it in other people, is that we're not moving in our minds at all. We're just kind of circling around like, you know, crows over something dead, in a sense. And, you know, in a, in a way, the poem will have the energy and will have more music. There's an inherent music to saying, but, yet. I mean, it becomes sharper and more forceful, and there's a lot more authority here. And so you get music in there, you get music inside of your thinking as well, and you pounce on the argument. Yes? I don't want to get ahead, ahead of you, but is this also a place where he breaks, this, breaks the meter at the same time as he turns so that the iambic, the iambic is being turned to a trope? Yes. Uh-huh. So it all happens at once, really, sonically and also. Yes, that's, that's very nice. What he said is that it is a breakage point also in meter. So if you know what the I am is, that um, going from a kind of unstress to a stress, uh, for instance, let's see, uh, for where, look at line five, for where is she so fair? That's iambic, for where, for where. Not, we don't say, for where is she so fair? You see, that would, that's not how we talk. So, for where is she so fair? Three iams in a row. And then you get down to but. Now that's going to have a beat on that first word. So it shifts to a trochaic. Uh, and the troche is the stressed, unstressed foot. Uh, now, you know, we can't go through a whole uh, talk on this stuff, but if you want to read about prosody, which is that kind of how you uh, will scan a poem or how you kind of write out how the poem sounds symbolically, you should read a book called uh, Poetic Meter and Poetic Form by, the last name is Fussell, F-U-S-S-E-L-L. -L. And, you know, actually for the nitty-gritty that it goes through, it's pretty... It's kind of exhilarating for our type of people here, but you know, don't recommend it at a dinner party or anything. But um, you know, still talk about the movies, not poetic meter and poetic form. But um, so anyway, you know, so yes, it does break itself musically. Uh, some other options, if you have to be fast in your conclusion, if you want to be fast, are to be funny. You know, to kind of have some wit. He will do this very often. Shakespeare will be witty, so it just ends. It will be pithy. Another thing is a little more difficult, but to be aphoristic or essentially to have a wisdom statement. So get out, you know, your smarts and uh, just say something very, very wise. Um, <laughs> it's a little easier said than done, but that is uh, how Shakespeare will conclude. So now, a way to kind of steal this is to steal that turn, to steal the thought that I am not going to repeat myself. I'm not going to use the same methods all the way through my poem. And you could do that in a quatrained kind of way, 
where in each stanza, if you have stanzas, you actually move your mind to say, well, I've used the simile in, you know, a simile of a bird in stanza one. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to present, present my argument differently. Now, of course, this is what a good debater would do, right? You don't use the same evidence for every uh, point. You have to pile evidence upon evidence. So even if our arguments in our poems are not you know, legal tracts or anything like that, but saying something like, I grieved because of this, that could be your argument. These can be very highly emotional things, but your persuasion will reside in the evidence being presented lyrically, uh, beautifully, uh, with variety, using things that feel sudden, things that feel kind of like a lyric flourish, that kind of variance within can really uh, help the poem. Now I'd like you to look directly below to a modern, or actually highly contemporary sonnet uh, by a poet named Elena Kalitiak Davis, who has a wonderful new book, well, it's a couple years old, but it's called Shattered Sonnets, Love Cards, and Other Often Backhanded Importunities. And uh, this is a wonderful book of, uh, you know, I don't think she uses this language, but of what I would call ghost forms. Uh, one of the comments on the back of the, of the book says that she loves the modernists, but she's also out to wring their neck. So she, in a sense, she mimics Dickinson, she mimics E.E. E. Cummings. Uh, those are the two I think you see most in her work. But at the same time that she uses them, she's also, in a sense, abusing them of something in a way. Uh, but this is actually a kind of sonnet-like uh, poem. And I think, in a sense, it's using the tools of the English or Shakespearean sonnet. Not just in the fact that we can count that there are 14 lines, but that she is developing, in a sense, an argument over, you know, in different ways about every four lines or so. So let me read you this. And uh, it's called A Small Number. You'll also find that the sonnets boil down to arguments that are very simple. Uh, they are not, the, the point itself is not complex. So Shakespeare, all he might be saying is, have a child, or uh, I don't want to compare you to a summer's day. Uh, but in a sense, the, the, the point of the poem is the persuasion and that it has been put into uh, the lyric and now can be remembered musically, in the mind and carried with us in some way. So here's a small number. So far have managed not much. So far a few fractures, a few factions, a few friends. So far a husband, a husbandry, nothing too complex. So far followed the simple instructions, read them twice, so far, memorized three moments, buried a couple deaths, those turning faces. So far, two or three sonnets. So far, some Berrigan and some Keats. So far, a scanty list. So far, a dark wood. So far, antithesis, and then maybe a little thesis. 
So far, a small number of Emily's letters. So far, Tim not dead. So far, Matt not dead. So far, Jim. So far, love. And love, not so far. Not so love. So far, no hope. So far, I'll face. So far, scrapped and scraped, but not with grace. So far, not very. Okay, so, you know, her argument is so very clear. It's, it's, it's almost the little thesis statement of the essay here at the top. So far, I have managed not much. I haven't managed or done very much. This is all I've done. Here's a little, you know, poem of what I've done in life. Uh, it is confessing in a sense, you know, what, part of why I, wrote, I love this poem is maybe I'm the only one who feels this way in the room, but I come to conferences like this or I teach and someone says, oh, have you read this or that? And you kind of say, yes, I read that years ago, you know. And it's very hard to uh, have read the whole canon. And most, uh, I think almost everyone, no one really has. And this is a wonderful poet saying, I've only done a little bit in a sense. I haven't even read all of Emily Dickinson's letters. I've just read a few. Just a little bit of Keats, you know, some of it. I have read A Dark Wood. What is she referring to there? What's that? Oh, well, Frost has a dark wood. Dante's going to be the big dark wood. Frost will be the little dark wood. So start with Frost, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, the Snowy Evening poem. Uh, and so, yes, I have done this, I haven't done that. Now look at the, at the beginning, in about the first four lines, it's kind of more general. A few fractures, well, what's that? A few factions, a few friends. Now we get into the people of her life, a husband, a husbandry, and all of that. Then in the next four, it's vague. It's not going to be very strict about quatrains here. But you see, simple instructions begins read them twice. Here's, in a sense, what she has read. I've memorized some things. You know, we don't want just a boring list of what she's read, so she puts in there, I've buried a couple of deaths. So you see this kind of, I'm pitching it low emotionally and then high. Low, then high, low, then high. Uh, the mood is going to change in here, and that's how she sneaks in these things that are quite heavy, in a sense. Then we get that, uh, the list again of a small number of Emily's letters. And I think there's another shift about somewhere near so far Tim not dead. We get this catalog of friends or lovers who have or have not died. Then love goes on. And then she, uh, I think, really concludes with just a tiny, tiny statement of so far not very. So it's almost as if the couplet has been shrunken down to the size of what she has not done. You see, so form there and subject will be in very kind of tight relationship and striking relationship. Uh, so in some ways, she is, she is using the sonnet. She doesn't care so much about obedience, you see, because obedience uh, doesn't always get us the most powerful poem we might have or the most beautiful music. 
uh, or the most true sentiment or true thought or complex thought. So, and of course you can see this in, you know, where is obedience called for in the world? Our governments call for it uh, in some way. The, you know, a lot of governments call for it in very, very strict ways and much is threatened if you are not obedient, uh, religious institutions, a lot of these things. Now, um, if that brings about the best result, uh, I, I'm, I would not say so. But uh, in the little microcosm of the poem, you know, obedience really shouldn't be at the top of our list as creative writers. So that's uh, Davis, and I recommend her her book very highly for this kind of thing. Also, to talk a bit about rhyme or music in the sonnet, she's not obeying the um, A, B, A, B, etc. rhyme scheme of Shakespeare here at all. But you hear the sounds of the poem, there's a kind of uh, sensation of rhyme or a sensation of repetitive sounds without the literal scheme. Now that's something I think that can be very helpful to think in terms of, well, I want the sound, I want repetition of sound or refrain, like so far. That can be very powerful, but maybe I don't have to have that strict rhyme scheme at the end. And rhyme scheme can very often carry the mind to the most obvious next word. And that's the thing to be careful of. So I have to have an A rhyme. I need something to rhyme with viewist. Well, what can I have? So if the mind goes very quickly to fill in that blank, you know, like a Mad Libs or something, it might not be the smartest, sharpest word right there. Okay, I'll go more quickly over the Petrarchan, although I think it's maybe more helpful for contemporary poets, because if you look at this turn of the Petrarchan sonnet, you get more time. See how much more bold there is there? You get six lines to cast your eyes back upon the octave or the eight line stanza to then uh, think it over, turn, and uh, in some way conclude. Now also I think that in modern or contemporary poetry, something that happens in sonnet-like poems is that that conclusion actually turns into a non-conclusion. You know, I don't think I can sum everything up anymore. I don't know if I can even conclude about something. So I'll use these six lines to wonder about it in a different way. Uh, now, this holy sonnet, uh, one of uh, Dunn's most famous, Batter My Heart, Three-Personed God, uh, I'll read it through and just listen to that turn. He's going to be med meditating in a sense and asking God to beat him into submission. I mean, really, it, this poem has been talked about in very beautiful ways, but it's a very violent poem that actually mimics the a model of thinking about God as an abusive husband. So, uh, Holy Sonnet 14, batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. 
Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. All right, so I don't want to spend too much time on this poem. I want to go to the contemporary one below, but the, the, the Italian, I find more useful myself in my own writing to use the ghost of the Italian uh, rather than the ghost of the English, but that's only because I don't want to conclude in two lines usually. So, but the yet dearly, that's where the whole mind shifts. So you see this whole, I can't do this. I am trying to admit you. Uh, I was given reason, which was supposed to keep watch over my mind uh, while you were away, while God is away in some way. Uh, but that's not working. Reason, it's not enough. It's not working very well here. And so I'm too weak. And then, but I do love you uh, and all of these things. So then, uh, again, the breakage of the I am will come all over the place here. I mean, this whole poem is breaking the rhythm that it ought to have, starting with batter, batter my heart. And then all of this break, blow, burn, and make me new. Now let's look below at Dennis Johnson's poem, Heat, which uh, is going to use this turn very sharply. And this is a poem that will argue that, in a sense, the summer heat, in a sense, which we think could possibly offer a kind of sweltry arrows, in a sense, is going to be a lie that Dennis Johnson, uh, in a sense, uh, will uncover here. So this is the poem, Heat. And you'll hear the turn very clearly. Here, in the electric dusk, your naked lover tips the glass high, and the ice cubes fall against her teeth. It's beautiful Susan, her hair sticky with gin, our, la our lady of the wet glass rings on the album cover, streaming with hatred in the heat as the record falls and the snake band chords begin to break like terrible news from the Rolling Stones. And such a last light full of spheres and zones. August, you're just an erotic hallucination. Just so much feverishly produced kazoo music. Are you serious? This large <laughs> oven impersonating night this exhaustion mutilated to resemble passion, the bogus moon of tenderness and magic you hold out to each prisoner like a cup of light. Okay, so you might know Dennis Johnson more for, uh, oh, what's the book? Jesus. Jesus' Son, yeah, yeah. Jesus' Son, the fiction, but he's also a wonderful poet and uh, this is from a book called Incognito Lounge. And so here in this poem, you hear how he's flushed it completely full with contemporary images. The Rolling Stones, the gin, uh, what else? The album cover. He's reinvigorating the form in a sense with all of our language. Don't uh, be 
tempted, in a sense, to, when you look at the traditional form, to sound old or archaic. That's going to be one of the, the traps of looking at older poems. You need to still sound like a person of the world today, in a sense. That doesn't mean you can't use uh, interesting high diction or, or language that interests you, but you still want to be, in a sense, alive with today. So here he uses that direct address, August. You're just an erotic hallucination. And he's going to accuse the, the month, the lie, the <coughs> summer, of what he thinks it has done to trick him, in a sense. So this is another way to turn, to address something and to confront it, to confront the idea in a way. Um, now before I keep talking, are there any questions of what we, I've been, we've been doing here? No? Okay. Uh, now I really love when I write to be able in a sense to say, especially when I'm stuck. Now, I think these forms can be really helpful when you get in a place in a poem that uh, you just can't go on. Because the reason you can't go on sometimes is that line of thinking is worn out and you're just staying there too long. But if you actually go into a kind of rhetoric or argument that asks the mind to do something different, all of a sudden a new pathway is open to you. So you turn. Just If anything you remember about the sonnet that I think is most helpful is that turn of mind that occurs inside of it. So you're writing, maybe you've written 20 lines, it doesn't even matter what it is, but if you get stuck, well what if I just put the word although? I just write that word. I don't know what I'm going to say afterwards. I put the word but, then, still, so. Any of these words that will position yourself differently and then you look back and if I were to say although, in a sense that's indicating that everything I've said I'm now going to consider is a bit wrong. You know, although what I've just told you is not quite right. Although when the sun comes through that window everything looks different. And so to cast doubt on your own statements is a very interesting turn in poetry, I think. Um, and I will, I'm going to read a little a sonnet that I wrote that I used this kind of ghostly thing, and it's very ghostly. Basically all I've used here is the octave and the sestet with a turn, and I'll kind of tell you how I composed it in a sense. It's not on your sheet. Um, but this is how I got unstuck in this poem, I was wanting to write a poem uh, about this Chinese garden in Oregon. They have a, a Chinese garden, and I liked a lot of the images there. And one of them was all of the paper lanterns that they had. Um, and there was quite a bit of language written on these lanterns. And it, they were all very old, and so a lot of them were decaying in some way. So I liked the image, but I didn't know what to say about it, right? So. I started to write this, this pocket of imagery about the Chinese garden, and then I used, in a sense, what I had at my disposal from the sonnet to turn in a little bit of a way. So this poem is called uh, Overture, and it actually kind of becomes, in a sense, the argument of uh, the book I'm working on right now. So this is how it starts. I'll read it once, and then I'll talk through it a tiny bit. So Overture. 
It's grief that tears the paper lantern right where the calligraphy begins to tell of some other dynasty that boasted persimmon and pomegranate, what it grew and how it warred while its people floated dead on flooded rice fields. And here's the term. My stoic, unconvinced world. Is it that you don't know grief or haven't had enough of it that you let yourself be governed so? So in this poem, I do remember you know, writing this image of those lanterns and imagining, in a sense, the dynasty, uh, the Chinese dynasties, in a sense, that did not take care of their people and um, all of the deaths kind of under that government. And this, uh, the book I'm writing right now is about, in a sense, how government doesn't take care of its, its people. And partly that's from my experience living in New Orleans when the hurricane hit. So this image of you know, people dying in a flood was kind of right there in my mind. And so I wrote this description, and then I thought, well, what do I do now? What do I, what do, I do? And I decided to steal that sestet from the sonnet and just address something. And I thought to myself, well, I don't think I've ever addressed the world. So maybe I'll try addressing the world. Because, you know, the authority you take in a poem is taken. You, you, you're putting it on, right? Uh, so why not really put it on once in a while? You can't put it on like that all the time. And nobody wants a bossy poem, right? <laughs> but um, you, know, you don't want to be preached to. So I kind of decided, well, I'll use that sestet, but I'll ask a question. So I'll use some authority by saying, my stoic, unconvinced world. But then I'll say, well, why do you let yourself be governed in this way? So in a way, I remember really stealing that. And in a sense, you can find a lot of really boring, uninteresting criticism that goes against poets who steal like this and says, well, this hasn't, you know, no, not many people write about me, I'll tell you. But, um, you know, the, the big, big, big poets. You'll see arguments that say things like, well, she doesn't understand traditional form because look at how she cheats. And she doesn't, she doesn't understand the purpose of it and all of this. And this, you read a lot, and I just think, that's a very boring argument. I mean, why not, why not allow the poem to come into its power however it can come, you know, and not really take these, uh, you know, these certain camps? It's just, it's just uninteresting to me. Uh, now, if you, in a sense, if you write something that's going to be called sonnet-like, where you cheat a lot, you know, uh, those, those are going to be called uh, nonce sonnets. Uh, and if you were in my class this weekend, we talked about this a bit, but the word nonce is spelled N-O-N-C-E. And so if it's sonnet-like, but you're kind of inventing a new little sonnet type of poem, it would be called a nonce sonnet. And so there is a name for what you're doing, you know, and you can use this uh, if you get uh, talked to about it in a sense. And also, if you invent a form for one poem that has nothing to do with traditional forms, it's called a nonce form. So you've event, invented an occasion uh, or a type of poem for your occasion that you're writing about. And if everybody catches on and copies you, then it can get a name of its own. So let me know if that happens. Uh, all right, now we can turn the page 
I can either go the last 10 minutes and talk, or we can have questions. So let me, let me see first if there's questions. If not, we'll look at Dickinson. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. So he's asking if you if you couldn't hear what uh, to speak a bit about Seamus Heaney, who actually, when he writes a sonnet, is much closer to the the traditional sonnet. And it's true; these poems I've given you are a little are pretty far away, but still something recognizable about the sonnet is there. And of course, there's a whole spectrum of these uh, <coughs> ghosts or uh, real gestures toward tradition that occur in poetry. And uh, Seamus Heaney, one of our kind of elder poets and still living today, uh, would probably have a bit more of an interest in staying closer to the tradition, in a sense. And he is a poet who is very interested in how the, the human life on the ground can be presented in a kind of uh, beautifully musical yet human way. So I think one thing he does in his writing that I you know, admire so much is that even if he elevates it to a kind of almost sonnet you know this is really you know you see it as a sonnet it's still so much the human experience delivered to you so he's not going to heighten both things at once I think and yeah so there'll be closer uh, versions and things that are very far I mean the one I read to you of mine I think is very far I don't use rhyme any of that I mean it might break and look like a sonnet in some way but that's about it. So there is going to be a full spectrum of how close you come and how far you go. Any other question? Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you quoted Rothke, it almost sounded like he was saying is everybody's operating with ghosts, whether they think so or not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, could you, I mean, that's that's even more extreme statement. Uh -huh. You're talking about conscious. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Consciously. <clears throat> sorry, working with the ghost, but. That unconsciously or not, the very air we breathe, the, the, the language we move through is haunted. Yeah. Sure, yeah, that's a nice point, too. Yeah, Retke will say, you know, every free verse poem has the ghost of a form. So he is kind of saying, why are you calling yourself so free? None of us are free. Uh, we all, in some way, are stepping into. Uh, our, our history and what we've read and even if you don't know the names of these things you know in the same way that if you love a certain singer uh, uh, and then you start singing yourself you might sing the same way uh, that happens in poetry all the time so you might not be aware I guess I'm kind of talking more today about how you can really choose to do this and actually choice dwindles off after you practice it enough and becomes musical or uh, rhetorical intuition in a sense. So there's a blurry line between, well, I'm trying to write a sonnet, and then after maybe 20 years, you just turn in the, the, the language or you 
rhyme unconsciously because you have practiced a lot and you're just in a way frankly getting better at it. I mean you can get better at poetry. Uh, you're not just given it or not given it. <laughs> so uh, I mean it's kind of like athletics. Uh, you are training yourself in some way and I think the discipline of poetry should be presented as such, you know, as a rigorous uh, as a rigorous encounter and practice. So, uh, yeah, I'm talking more about being conscious about it, but also uh, what, what do your free verse poems, I mean, if you are writing free verse and aren't thinking about traditional form, you might want to ask yourself, what am I using? What am I not using? And, you know, am I using the sentence more than I'm using the fragment? Am I you know, how can I vary things? Am I, am I using any sound devices at all? Uh, so I think there is kind of a difference in those two arguments, but uh, we can all try to see, and it may be easier to see who you are influenced by. Am I using, you know, for instance, uh, I've had students who just uh, will love James Tate, and all of a sudden they sound like James Tate, and you need to be aware of that. Um, <clears throat> of what you're doing, who you're imitating, things like that. But I think actually imitation uh, is one of the most valuable tools. And people get afraid that, well, that's not mine then, or... But if you think of something like a novelist trying to write as well as George Eliot, it's a pretty big goal. No one's probably going to say, you're too much like George Eliot. You know, <laughs> so aim high. I mean, one, I can't remember which poet says this, but uh, some, a student asked a poet once, well, what exercise would you recommend for my writing? And he said, be as good as George Herbert. <laughs> so I think that's a good advice. Just, you know, aim very, very high uh, in, in, what you, in what you're imitating. So let me just uh, maybe do a minute on Dickinson. So turn this around. And I will get you um, to lunch at noon. Emily Dickinson is, I think, very fascinating in, in formal ways and every way, actually. But she was raised in a time of a great Puritan revival in the Northeast. And her years were 1830 to 1886. Uh, she never did convert to this religion. She never did uh, actually profess herself to be a Christian. Uh, but what she had in the house growing up uh, was a library that included the hymnal, the dictionary. Uh, she also read, uh, she read a lot. She read Keats. She, she read Shakespeare. She loved the Brontes. She actually loved George Eliot. Uh, she didn't ever read Whitman, but she heard that he was disgraceful, she said. <laughs> so, the hymn here on the left, what I kind of just want to give a, a one minute on, is how you can actually react in your subject matter to uh, what is going on in an older form. So that the hymn really does haunt Dickinson. All of her poems, almost, almost all, are written in what you might call the hymnic template, or written like uh, how a hymn is formed in its quatrains, and in also a lot of the themes that it takes up. So here on the left, you see a very kind of well-known hymn that Dickinson would have known. 
I know that my Redeemer lives, what comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives, he lives, who once was dead, he lives my ever-living head. Now listen to what Dickinson does. I know that he exists somewhere in silence. He has hid his rare life from our gross eyes. Tis an instance play, tis a fond ambush, just to make bliss earn her own surprise. But, so she's using turn here too, but should the play prove piercing earnest, in other words, this hunt for God who's hidden, if, it, if the play of it becomes a little too fierce, should the glee glaze in death's stiff stare, would not the fun look too expensive? Would not the jest have crawled too far? So, uh, she is getting at that hymn not only in its form, she'll truncate it in, or, in order to say, I don't know as much as you know. You claim a lot in that hymn. I don't have that. I don't have a lot of knowledge about the divine. Uh, so instead, what comfort this sweet sentence gives in the hymn turns into no comfort. You know, he's somewhere in silence. And this becomes a frightening fact. It's a game gone wrong, really. You know, somebody's going to get hurt. <laughs> you know, the motherly thing that is always said when children are roughhousing, you know. She's, she's playing with God here, and then, well, what if it gets a little too rough? What if I die inside the glaze of, the, of this, uh, this glare, in a sense? Uh, so she will formally undercut but remain inside of the template of the hymn because it's much more powerful than rejecting it altogether. You see, you really can't be subversive of something unless you're within it. So it doesn't, you're not subversive of a tradition you're outside of, you're more critical of it, right? It might be criticism, but you're not within trying to underturn it or overturn it. Dickinson is on the inside in a sense, although I have said she didn't convert, but this was her world. She's staying within the world and she's going to try to undo it and say, it's more complex than the song you sing. I have a different song. And we know she did uh, have about 1,700 songs in her, a lot of them, about this, reacting in this ghostly way. So let me end there, since we're out of time. And if you ever, you know, you want to talk about this more, uh, come find me. I don't know where. Uh, <laughs> uh, or find each other. And thank you very, very much.